This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 154, and we are recording on October 23rd. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. How's it going, Amanda? I just messed up that agenda all kinds it's of ways. It's totally fine. <laughs> I did it. I did uh, it anyway. You caught it. Good job. Uh, we, we copy and paste like the agenda from last week, and I forgot to change the episode number and the date, but... Your girl's good on the fly. Not me, Jen. <laughs> I'm obviously not good on the fly. What you reading? Um, oh, my goodness. I just started Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, um, which I think I'm the last staff person to nope, read. I haven't, I haven't read okay, it, so well, you're ahead of me. Better. Okay. So Jess, who was a Book Riot contributor and is now on staff on the sales team, read it like months ago and raved about it and what a bonkers story it was. And so it, like, slowly made its way through the Book Riot staff, as titles often do. Um, and so I finally I finally got it on Library Holds. It took forever. Uh, and it is, as promised, completely freaking bonkers. It's, like, a Silicon Valley story. Not story. It's nonfiction. About a company called Theranos that was started by a 22-year-old, oh boy, technically a woman, I guess, uh, in California, who got, what does that mean? Like, she's so young. That's so oh, young, oh. I feel like, to start this kind of multi-hundreds of million dollars of capital. And, like, you know, Silicon Valley treats women so terribly. And how she mm-hmm. managed to still get trust and, like, money out of all of these dude venture capitalists. It's just kind of bonkers. I'm Like, I'm reading it and I can't. I, it was a total scam. Like, the product that she came up with didn't work, never worked. And she somehow managed to, like, hide it from... All of these people, all of these, like, high-powered Silicon Valley people. And, like, traveled internationally, raising startup money. And, like, for a 22-year-old to... It's just... She scams everyone. But at the same time, she's like, seems to fully believe that what she's doing is okay. Like, she's she's got to be a sociopath. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not that far into it. But I can't stop being like, what what is happening? Like, who is... Someone has got to find out that this woman is scamming all these people and obviously they eventually did there's like court cases happening now and this guy wrote this book about it but anyway I just had a whole thing I just did a whole rant right there about how bonkers (laughs) this book was Jess is right it is bonkers go read it it's just such a such a tale such a tale what about you Um, I got my hands on the sequel to The Forest of a Thousand Lanterns. It's called Kingdom of the Blazing Phoenix. It's by Julie C. Dow. It's the second in that Rise of Empress series that I love so much. Um, and I am so enjoying it. But it was, I, I probably should have, I didn't read the copy before I picked it up. Like I like, I just, I just knew it was the sequel. I didn't check anything. But it jumps 18 years into the future from the end of Forest of a Thousand Lanterns. Um, and is a narrative, it's a perspective switch. So you're actually now coming from the perspective of Jade. Or I guess it's technically 15 years. She's 18, right? Um, 
And so you get her perspective. Um, and she's, like, been grown up in a monastery and, like, knows she's a princess, but, like, it's kind of a secret and nobody else knows. And she's not, you know, ha- ha- she's been educated, but she hasn't lived in court at all. And now she's been summoned back to court by her stepmother, who she knows, like, almost nothing about. Um, and, like, we know about Shifeng, but, like, Jade doesn't. And I'm just like, <gasps> Like, I'm so <laughs> nervous for everyone. Especially because... What what Forest of a Thousand, a Thousand Lanterns did so well was like create this sort of sympathetic antagonist. You're like, oh, you're like doing terrible things, but I like, I get you, like I see you. Um, and now it's 15 years later, and I'm like, oh no, what's happened to her? Like, what has she become? Um, so I'm having a lot of feelings, <laughs> which is my favorite. Um, Got over the yes. dark side, Luke. I- Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, so that's Kingdom of the Blazing Phoenix, which is out on November 6th. So sorry, uh, not sorry for teasing that a little bit. Um, okay, so we're doing a special theme episode today. We are going to talk about Stephen King readalikes for Scaredy Cats, um, because seasonally appropriate, and why not? Um, but normally how the show works is that you send in questions about what you should read next or what your book club should read or what you should get for a gift for a friend or relative. And we will do our best to find you a good match. Uh, you can send those questions either via email. It's getbooked at bookriot.com or you can put them in the form at the bottom of the show notes on the site uh, for every episode. And if you have a request that you would like back by a certain date, please do put time sensitive and the date that you'd like it back by at the very top of the form or in the subject line of the email so that we see it. If we don't think we're going to get to it on air, we might send you an email response either because we don't have the right timing or because it's a question that's been asked before and we have some answers for you. So uh, that's how that works. And before we launch into all of our picks and whatnot, I want to remind you all that we have recently, well, it has recently been unveiled. We've been working on it for a while. Um, a very exciting new subscription service that is basically Stitch Fix for books. It's called TBR for Tailored Book Recommendations. Um, and you can tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for, much like with this show. But then your bibliologist will handpick recommendations for you. You can get hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email. So there's budget options. Um, and yeah, sign up only takes a few minutes. You get to take a fun quiz and questions about what you like um, and we match subscribers to bibliologists based on the specialties and the things that you're looking for um, so you should visit mytbr.co to sign up and check it out so that's mytbr.co very excited about that Alrighty, I guess I'll go ahead and do our first sponsor before we get rolling mm-hmm. um, we, we each picked like a different book of Stephen King's and then found a reader like for it. So there's no real structure to this episode except <laughs> I'm going to go and then Jed's going to go or vice versa. I haven't really figured it out yet. Um, so before we get into it, I'll talk about our first sponsor, which is not Stephen King related at all um, and is Duchess by Design by Maya Rodale, uh, which is the first book in a new romance series that takes place in the Gilded Age and is all about women making their own way in the world and the men who are strong enough to keep up with them. So in this first one, uh, it's about the Duke of Kingston who wants to find a wealthy American wife who can like save his family estate as often as necessary when you are, you know, uh, what, what's the impoverished 
aristocrats. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Downton Abbey .tumblr.com. Uh, but his search for <laughs> this heiress goes like totally awry when he stumbles upon a very enchanting seamstress. Her name is Adeline Black, and she wants to be a dressmaker. She does not want to be a duchess. She does not want to get married to some fancy guy who's going to take care of her. She like has ambitions, um, and not even this like super hot. Duke in particular is going to distract her from her dreams. But then he makes her an offer that is really um, valuable to her. If she joins him at society events, she can like display her gowns um, and, you know, drum up business and then advise him on which of the heiresses that they're meeting at these events are appropriate for him to marry. Um, so it's, you know, kind of this perfect plan as long as they can avoid a scandal and not fall in love with each other. And I bet you know, I bet you know what happens. I bet you do. So go check that out. That is the first book uh, in a new Gilded Age series. It's called Duchess by Design by Maya Rodale. All right. I'm just going to keep do you going. Think? Yeah, go. Okay, um, so my first read-alike is for The Shining. Um, and as Jen mentioned, these are read-alikes for Scaredy Cats, so they're not necessarily going to be as terrifying. I doubt you're going to need to put any of these in the freezer, but they are unsettling and creepy and weird, and this book is very unsettling and creepy. So my comp for The Shining is Mapping the Interior by Stephen Graham Jones. Uh, this is a novella. It's uh, pretty short. It's from Tor. And it is about a little boy who has supernatural abilities and issues with his father. So I'm sure you can imagine why boy, I felt I wonder... like this was a horrible book for the show. <laughs> um, so the, the main character is 12. Uh, he has a little brother and he lives with his mom in a really impoverished part of town. And his father is dead. His father, um, they lived on a reservation. Uh, Stephen Graham Jones is a Blackfoot author, and a lot of his books come from that perspective. The characters lived on a reservation until their father died, and then their mom moved them away. You know, like, let's get away from these memories and start over. Uh, so they're in this new house, and the boy sees the ghost of his father through the uh, living room windows out in the front yard one night. And then he spends the next several days kind of mapping the interior, hence the name, of his house. And it's very claustrophobic in that same way that pretty much all of Stephen King's books are claustrophobic, uh, where you get you get into, like, every corner of this house, under the floorboards, like, under the house, in the crawl spaces, in every room, as this ghost or demon, ghost, demon, supernatural being thing, father figure, um, gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And the way that he's getting stronger and stronger is really damaging to both boys who live in, in this home. And at the same time, he has to deal with, like, his mom and his mom's new boyfriend, who is a sheriff, and his neighbor and their dogs who want to eat him for lunch and, like, being bullied in school and all of these uh, these different, you know, issues that a 12-year-old would deal with um, while at the same time defending him and his family from the ghost of his dead father uh, and all of the, the possibly nefarious and malicious things that he wants to do. Um, and it's really kind of heartbreaking because, like, he, he, his memories of his dad aren't bad. Like, he, he misses his father and when he first realizes, like, oh, I have this ability to communicate with him still... He wants to, like, please this ghost and, and, and find a way to bring him back into being. Um, and then he slowly realizes who his father actually was. And it's just, like, this is really sad and, like, creepy and, uh, and uh, unsettling. So that's Mapping the Interior by Stephen Graham Jones. I have seen that movie multiple times. It's one of the few horror movies that I will rewatch. But I've never read the, the story. I oh. feel like... Yeah. They're way different. Yeah. I feel like now I... I wonder if I, it would be worse to read <laughs> the story. Um, oh. I thought the book was a lot 
creepier, but in really comical ways. Like, the book has a haunted topiary maze. So I got really creeped out by, like, topiary animals for the longest time. It's yeah. It's kind of right. silly. Interesting. Now Interesting. I'm scared of topiary lions. I don't know. Uh, well, <laughs> legit. Um, cool. Um, so my first title that I worked on comping was actually the hardest one to come up with. Um, I was working on a comp for Carrie, which I read for the first time for this show. And that book was interesting. Mm. I it actually no, I will say I like it wasn't I, I it held up I mean I have did not read it as a kid, but it held up better than I was expecting it to. Like there are definitely some things in there that I'm like, hmm, yeah, that's a little, little let's let's call it, let's be gentle and call it dated. Um <laughs> but uh but there was some stuff that really did hold up and um and I wasn't mad that I had read it. Like it was, I'm like actually, I'm kind of glad now that I know the original. Um, and now I have to watch all of the TV remakes um, just to see what they did with it. Um, but but that book is a really hard book to comp, right? Because there's a lot of different things going on. You've got this like fear of female power. You've got you know like blood in its many forms. You've got bullying, you've got religious fundamentalism, you've got supernatural powers and like the awakening of that. And then you've got revenge. Like, and it is just, there are just not that many books that have all of those things in them. Um, and I was trying to like stick it to a plot point by plot point comp and I just couldn't do it. So instead I ended up going for like, okay, so, so Carrie, the character, you like, it, it's like kind of like what I was talking about earlier, actually, with Force of a Thousand Lanterns. Like you see her making these bad choices, and, or or choices that get progressively worse, and you like kind of can't fault her. You're like, yeah, well, I mean, I get it. Like I see where you're coming from. Like obviously, this is not good that you're gonna like burn it all down, but like I understand. Um, and the book that is the most that for me, and also honestly is potentially, I think, actually more disturbing than Carrie is Out by Natsuo Kirino. It's translated by Steven Snyder. We've talked about it before, but, like, if you have missed it, it is the story of... Um, it starts with a young mother who works at, like, a really, you know, crappy factory-ish job boxing up lunches. Um, and one night she strangles her deadbeat husband because he is abusive and is awful. And um, and she just, like, loses it. And now she's, like, got this body that she's got to dispose of. Um, and so she turns to her coworkers at the factory because she just doesn't know what else to do. Um, and they help her with the body and then, like, like turns out we're kind of good at this uh like what else should we do with our surprising skills um but then they sort of fall afoul of the yakuza and they're being hunted by a detective um and so like you know they're like they're people are coming at them from both sides and they have no idea what they're doing um i've seen thelma and louise comps to this which i don't think is too far off um and it is it's like it's about women and revenge and like pushing back sometimes with knives at the violence that women experience um, from the world. And so, yeah, it is dark. I mean, trigger warnings for sexual assault and abuse. Um, and it's really gory. And like, I remember like not being able to like eat 
after a little while after I finished reading this book because it's just really descriptive about food and bodies. And you're just like, ooh, like now I'm nauseous. Um, so it doesn't have a supernatural touch to it. But otherwise, you know, in terms of the feelings that I got from Carrie, this was as close as I could get. So, uh, again, that is out by Natsuo Kirino. It's translated by Steven Snyder. <laughs> yeah, I know. What a book that is. Okay. Yeah. Um, my next read alike is for Pet Cemetery, which is getting a new adaptation. The trailer just came out recently, and it looks, um, you know, creepy, as is <laughs> to be expected. Uh, and so my con for this is Winter People by Jennifer McMahon. Um, and I, I struggled with this one because telling you why they're comparable might be considered a spoiler. So, I, I mean, I don't necessarily think so. But if you are really spoiler reverse, then, like, fast forward maybe three minutes. Because um, I might I might be spoiling this for you. I don't know. I, I couldn't make up my mind. So I'm just going with it. Uh, so The Winter People takes place in Vermont. Present day. It jumps back and forth between present day in the early 1900s. And in present day, a, a girl named Ruthie, who is 19, is living with her sister, her little sister Sarah, and their mother Alice in this old farmhouse in a tiny little town in Vermont. Um, they live completely off the grid uh, and have like kind of a, a his, like a, maybe a little bit of like a culty kind of background. Um, but now they're just living off the grid. And one day they wake up, Ruthie wakes up and realizes that her mother is gone. Her mother has gone missing. She doesn't come home for a couple of days. But since they're off the grid, it's making it really hard for Ruthie to like find out where she went because she doesn't have a phone, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and as she's searching for clues of like where her mother could have possibly gone, she finds an old diary hidden in the floorboards of her mother's bedroom. And the diary is from Sarah Harrison, who was one of the, uh, maybe the original owner of the farmhouse that they live in, but, you know, lived in the farmhouse in the early 1900s. And so you're reading this diary of uh, this woman whose daughter dies a really tragic death, and then the story gets super creepy from there, the diary does. And at the same time, you're following Ruthie as she tries to find her mother, and that gets increasingly creepy. And then you, as the book progresses, you find out why. Now, since I'm comparing it to Pet Cemetery, I'm pretty sure you know why it's creepy and like what happens to Sarah Harrison and her kid uh, in the early 1900s. Um, the, the way that it intertwines with the present day and what's happening with uh, Alice and, and her daughters was surprising to me. Uh, that was an interesting kind of twist. I don't want to go farther into it because it is kind of like spoilery and how they get there, but the, uh, the concept of like living in the present with that sort of supernatural kind of responsibility um, and like power is very interesting. And Stephen King talks about it in Pet Cemetery, of course, but that book came out in well, like the 70s. So it, it does feel nobody's got a cell phone. You know, it feels a little bit less uh, relevant than, than maybe this one does. So that's The Winter People by Jennifer McMahon. All right. I had Shawshank Redemption and or The Green Mile. Basically prison stories. <laughs> um, like potentially supernatural, maybe not. Um, but yeah, I was thinking about the prison stories of Stephen King. And um, my comp for this is The Walls Around Us by Nova Rensuma, which is technically a YA book. But I think this is really crossover-y. Like I... I, I, like a lot of YA is honestly, but the protagonists are like 18. I mean, they're not, it's not like 13 year olds. Like this is, I feel like this has a lot of comps for a lot of adult books. Um, 
or books that are marketed that way, let's put it that way. Um, and I think it's really interesting, and it is a prison story, and it's like an unjust imprisonment story, and it's supernatural, Ugh, and it's just so good. Um, you start off with Violet, who is an 18-year-old dancer, um, who is like, you know, sort of coming to the pinnacle of her pre-professional career. Like, she's been training and working so hard, and she's finally, you know, getting the spotlight and something is threatening to derail her achievements. And then you switch perspectives and you head to the Aurora Hills Juvenile Detention Center, which is um, juvie for young uh, women. And you are in the perspective of Amber, um, who has just been in juvie forever. Um, and Amber, oh my gosh, is my favorite. Um because she's in charge of the library cart. Um, like, that's her job. And so she, you know, pushes it around, like, taking the books to the different uh, detainees. Um, and, like, it's, it's there's, I actually, I think I made a list when I was reading this book of all of the books mentioned um, from the library cart. Like, it was such a, it was such a nice little, it was like seeing friends on the page. It's like, oh, yeah, I love that book, too. Um, and then the, the sort of tie between them is this young woman, Oriana, who, shows up um, in the detention center one day. Um, and, and I cannot tell you anything more than that because really the twist of this is what's so crazy and satisfying about this book and what makes it like just a, one of the weirdest books I've read in a long time. Like it's a haunting story and it's a, it's a ambition story and it's about female friendships and it's just, it's just so strange and 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 it unrolls in such an odd way and I just loved it so much I mean I think that if like in particular this sort of you know you're like looking at the prison system and you're looking at you know all of these different angles of it like this is definitely gonna scratch that same itch that the Green Mile and or Shawshank Redemption, I think um have so again that's The Walls Around Us by Nova Rensuma. I've heard Nova Rensuma be called the Shirley Jackson of YA. Oh, that's a, I actually think that's a solid comp. Yeah, I, I do Yeah, too. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Which is like, now you got to read her whole backlist. You're welcome. Uh, yes. Everybody. Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, so my next read-alike was for Misery, which is one of my favorite Stephen King novels. It is so bonkers and just, ah, and again, claustrophobic. He's just so good at that. Um, so my comp was Perfect Days by Rafael Montes, um, who is a Brazilian writer, and this is his first book that he has written in English. Um, so it's about a guy named Teo, and he is off. He's a little off. And you realize this uh, from the beginning when he is talking about being in medical school, and his best friend is a, uh, named Gertrude, and it's not a person, it's a cadaver, uh, which you realize kind of slowly, and you're like, oh, this is, yep, creepy. And then he meets an actual person who is alive, who he likes, <laughs> and her name is Clarice. Um, she is a, you know, kind of, well, not bubbly, but she's a very, like, extroverted, outspoken screenwriter. She's working on a movie that she's called Perfect Days, which is about a group of friends who go on a road trip across Brazil. Uh, Teo becomes, like, obsessed with her. He begins to... Like, formulate a plan to make her like him. He, you know, quote-unquote, accidentally meets her at places on campus and things like that. And she just rejects his 
advances. She's not interested. She rejects him. Um, and so he decides to take her, like, as if she were a thing he was purchasing off a shelf. He kidnaps her uh, and takes her on a super weird road trip across Brazil using her screenplay as an outline. And it is so... It reminds you so much of Misery because in Misery, is it Kate? I don't remember the, the name of the woman in Misery who kidnaps that author. Um, but she is she is so logical. Like the things that she says to justify keeping him strapped to a bed because she's his biggest fan and like torturing him and all the things that she says um, sound so reasonable when she says them. Like her tone and the way that she speaks and the, the way that she words things are like, oh, well, obviously, like the solution is to keep you strapped here. Uh, and then Teo's this has that same kind of like, a psychopathy, I guess, is what it would be. I don't know. Obviously, I'm not a mental health professional. But that, like, detached, cold, I want this thing. Obviously, the solution is to do these things that to anyone else seem completely immoral and banana pants. And it, it's that... And Clarice, who is, you know, his victim, you're really... It's really a story about her and, like, how she manipulates him into uh, her, own, her own ability to survive. Like, the things that she does to play off his, um, I don't even know, creepiness, really, um, to survive this situation and get out of it. And then the ending is super jaw-dropping. Um, it is, it is, this is not, this is not a, like a scary book necessarily. I wouldn't, I would say that if you're a scaredy cat, it's, it's still fine. Like you're, you're not going to want to need to put it in the freezer, but it is odd. Like, I would even say if you had trouble with maybe, like, Lolita, this is maybe not the book for you. It doesn't have the same kind of, you know, um, age issues at all, but obviously, like, the consent, and it's that same dude takes woman or girl on a road trip for the, his own purposes, completely ignoring everything that she wants, and then you watch her struggle, like a butterfly pinned to a piece of paper, through his eyes. Like, it's that kind of uncomfortable, queasy thing um so that's perfect days by rafael montes queasy is the right word for that i will not be reading that yeah, it's, it's way like oh, oh, oh. um <laughs> just make it sounds just just all the sounds uh my next pick is also for my favorite stephen king book which is the stand um Oh, gosh. I think I was maybe 12, 11 or 12 when they uh, they did a miniseries with Gary Sinise, right, um, among other people uh, for, uh, for The Stand. And I watched it with a friend and was like, what is this? Like, what am I watching? Um, but that, you know, like the good side and the bad side and there's an epidemic and it's like a, you know, like everybody's got to gather into the camps. And I just was like, this is amazing. Um, and so I did read the book as a kid and then I reread it when I had a fever and was sick like a few years back. Like I just, I was like, just, I just couldn't really move out of bed. So I just laid in bed and read the whole like 1400 pages of the stand um, while having a fever, which I think is actually the perfect way to read the stand, quite <laughs> frankly. Um, I do recommend it. Um, 
Except for the part where I was convinced I was like dying of a flu epidemic. That right. was not fun. But, you know, the rest of it, real good. Um, and so, uh, and nothing is quite the stand, obviously. It is, it is its singular own thing. But a book that gave me some of the same feels and is one of my favorite sort of apocalypse plus road trip plus different sides um, of, a, of a, you know, dystopian land, or not dystopian, post-apocalyptic land, is The Book of M by Pung Shepherd. Um, I love this book. It is, it's interesting because the ending is really a heartbreaker and is very intense. And I've seen people be like, I finished this and I was so mad. And then I was like, I finished this and I was, oh, so good. It hurt so good. So, you know, fair warning. Um, the ending might, you may not like it, but I think this book is great. Um, so it picks up sort of mid-apocalypse uh, all over the world. People's shadows are disappearing, which at first just seems kind of like novel and interesting. And then it turns out that when your shadow disappears, you start to forget things. And you also gain the power to do some magic. But the more magic you do, the more you forget. And you don't just forget like oh, you know, where you put down your pen and like, you know, or maybe even like where you live, you eventually will forget how to breathe or that you need to eat or who you are. Um, you forget everything. Um, and it has, and nobody can figure out how it's spreading. And it's just like, you know, the world is sort of crumbling. So you see it start. Um, and then you see it mid sort of mid, you know, plague. And you're picking up a couple different perspectives, which is also similar to The Stand. You get different narrative viewpoints. Um, and there's Ori and his wife, Max, who were at a wedding in like a, you know, an upstate hotel in the woods um, when the thing struck. And they've just been holed up there ever since. But Ori's shadow, or excuse me, Max's shadow has disappeared. And Ori is like, oh God, like they, they've been preparing for this day. They knew it could happen. But like, it, he's he's like okay okay everything's gonna be fine and then she goes missing and so he is setting off from their hidey hole to try to figure out where she has gone um, and you also get um, Nas who is a young woman in college um, and an archer um, it's so cool so cool um, in Boston. And she is sort of watching this unfold. She's talking to her family abroad. Um, and everybody's trying to figure out, like, you know, what do you do? Do you stay put? Where do you go? Like, and, and she can't go back to Iran, which is where her family is. Um, and so, and then, you know, she ends up going on a bit of a road trip as well. Um, and you're like, are these people going to meet? How are they going to intersect? There's a really creepy section in Washington, D.C., which is the first place you see sort of, like, the bad quote unquote side. Um, and it's just, ooh, it's so atmospheric. Some of it is so creepy. Um, they're like, and there are all these signs, like, you know, everybody gather here. And so they're, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to assemble here and maybe somebody has a cure or maybe somebody has a solution. And then there's a big showdown and oh my gosh, I just think it's amazing. Um, it does so many different things. Um, people have also comped it to Station Eleven or The Passage, but I mean, it's, it is sort of, it, again, these are all, you know, that post or mid-apocalypse 
road trippy novels. Um, so if that is a trope that you love, I think this is a really interesting addition to that. And it, and it did give me a lot of the same feelings and the, this, I loved it for the same reasons that I love the stand. So again, that's the book of M by Pung Shepherd. Um, and I will now do our next sponsor so that we don't forget because <laughs> you know, we're, we're a rambly bunch today. Um, <laughs> Our next sponsor is What Would Cleopatra Do by Elizabeth Foley and Beth Coates. I love that title. Um, and this is an irreverent, inspirational, and a visual delight. Um, it shares the wisdom and advice passed down from Cleopatra, Queen Victoria, Dorothy Parker, and 47 other heroines from past eras on how to handle an array of problems women have encountered throughout history and still face today. So here are Cleopatra's thoughts on sibling rivalry or Mae West on body positive image, uh, Frida Kahlo on finding your style, Catherine the Great on dealing with gossip, you know, um, <laughs> just like that. It's got whimsical illustrations by artist Bijou Carmen, um, and it's definitely a gift-worthy tribute to history's outstanding women. Uh, so yeah, these are real fun, real interesting. It's about career planning and female friendship and loneliness and finances and political engagement, all through the perspective of these 50 different women from history. History. So if that is the thing that you're interested in, which I bet it is, uh, again, you can check that out. That's What Would Cleopatra Do by Elizabeth Foley and Beth Coates. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. All right. I am going to talk about My Comp for Salem's Lot, uh, which is another vampire book that takes place in kind of a small community, and that is Fledgling by Octavia E. Butler, which I'm going to give a trigger warning here for, kind of. It's child abuse Sort of, which is so hard to explain. Okay, so mm -hmm. uh, the the main character is wakes up with amnesia. She is uh, maybe about ten years old. Has big uh, lots of lots lots of injuries. Lots of injuries on her body. Her head is caved in a little bit. You know, um, that sort of thing. Just no problem. It's all gonna be fine. Uh, doesn't remember who she is, how she got to that, how she got to like the hole in the ground that she finds herself in. Um, and then she spends the next, like, week or two uh, killing deer with her bare hands and maybe a person or two and eating them to recover. Uh, and then she is, like, drawn to this area uh, close to where she wakes up. Um, and she discovers that there's a community of homes in this spot that she, like, just feels drawn to that have been destroyed. They are uh, burned down. She, you know, like rummages through the rubble, finds a few things that seem like they might be familiar, but not really. She finds some clothes, you know, dresses herself and then starts walking down the road um, trying to like decide what to do next. And as she's walking down the road, she gets picked up by a man uh, who is like, of course, I found this 10 year old girl on the side of the road. What happened to you? Can I take you to a hospital? Can I take you to the police? Can I, you know, um, and she doesn't want to go. She, as, as things unfold, um, everyday items and words open up memories to her so like she doesn't know why she doesn't want to go to the police but she knows that she doesn't like she, she remembers that that's bad she doesn't know why she doesn't want to go to the hospital but she knows that that's definitely not a place that she should go um and then she bites the guy <laughs> and you can imagine how that goes she bites him and he at first struggles and then doesn't um and their relationship between the, the she is a vampire between the vampire and this grown man involves some sexual stuff that when you're reading it is is very uncomfortable it was very uncomfortable 
uh, to read. But in reality, she is in her 50s. So that's why I say it's a trigger warning, sort of, because when you when you're when you're reading it on the page, it's really hard to get past the fact that she has a 10 year old person's body or 12 or whatever it is. She's a young girl body wise um, because vampires just age a lot more slowly physically than humans do. So she is in reality, you know, half a century old, but as a reader, I was, I had to like very yeah. consciously get over it. Or not, I don't think I even got over it. I just had to very consciously be like, it's okay. Like, it's fine. It's fine. Like, mm. uh, I trust Octavia Butler to take me pretty much anywhere. So I just went with it. So that it was a long and rambly way of kind of explaining why there's like an asterisk next to my trigger warning. Anyway, so um, her and her, in the book, they call it a symbiote, I think, but um, her guy, who she has taken under her wing, her, her bite is, you know, kind of addictive, so he becomes essentially like a, a servant to her. Um, her Renfield. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, they kind of go on this, it's almost a quest to figure out who she is and where she came from, where her memories went. And along the way, she finds um, some family members, and you learn all of these really interesting ways in which the vampire society is set up and how they interact with people or don't. And um, part of the reason, I think, for the physical relationship between the main character and her guy, I can't remember anybody's name, <laughs> is, uh, you know, the whole book is like an exploration of power dynamics and the main character is black. So that comes up quite a bit. And she is genetically engineered to be black so that she can maybe stay out in the sun longer than vampires traditionally can. And the whole book becomes about other vampires trying to decide if she's a person, like if she counts, if she's actually a vampire after her genes have been modified to make her look the way that she does. So Octavia Butler is exploring so many different, she's poking at the ideas of power imbalances and what makes a person a person. Um, but it is not lacking in the creep factor. Like there, she's still a really dangerous character. And the fact that it opens with you not knowing why she's like that or, or um, you know, where she comes from or who she is, is it like just adds to that unsettling thing. And then her relationship uh, with, he's not the only per like grown adult who she has this kind of relationship with. So it just, it doesn't stop. Like you're just unsettled the whole time. So that's Fledgling by Octavia E. Butler. Yeah, Octavia Butler is so good at compulsion and power dynamics. Like that's like like if Stephen King is like claustrophobia is his theme, like compulsion I feel like is Octavia Butler's theme mm -hmm. and it's so effective and disturbing. So disturbing. <laughs> Just so like if it were written by anyone except her, I think I would have stopped. Oh writing yeah. It. I would have No, stopped. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but I'm so glad you read it finally. Yes, now I, can, I know. We can talk about it together. <laughs> talk about our gross noise feelings. <laughs> oh. Octavia, I have questions. That you yeah, answer, seriously. Because you're not um, with us anymore. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. So my next pick was for the Gunslinger and or Dark Tower series generally, but pretty specifically for the Gunslinger. And I feel real good about this one. It is Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse. And if you are looking for, like, gore, which the Gunslinger has in spades, you're looking for supernatural stuff. You're looking for, like, a western-y, frontiers-y sort of post-collapse world you're looking for um you know dark forces and you know making hard choices and the person you're, you're gonna try to like stop the dark stuff but you or yourself have the darkness in you all of these things 
are in Trail of Lightning. It is about a young woman named Maggie who is a monster hunter. Um, and she is uh, Dineta, uh, which is part of the Navajo um there's a Navajo reservation that in this world, like the United States has kind of sort of collapsed in various ways. And now the reservation has become its own country, separate country protected by a giant wall, magic wall. Um, and along with sort of the resurgence of, you know, the native um, power, there's also supernatural things have entered the world again. And so there are gods and heroes and legends and monsters. Um, and so Maggie is a monster hunter and she is gifted. She has powers. Um, but she, her mentor has abandoned her and she is convinced that it is because she herself is basically a monster and that she is basically good for nothing. Like she, she is, she is in a dark place mentally. She believes that there's nothing good about her or her powers. Um, and she's just kind of like, for lack of a better word, she's sulking in a trailer in the mountains. Um, when the book opens and, a a small town comes to her because one of the little girls has been kidnapped by a monster and they need her to get the little girl back if she can. So she takes the job, but she's just like, they're afraid of her and she just is miserable all the time. Um, and she goes on this job and it doesn't go great. Um, and she discovers that some, but it's not just an isolated incident. There's something much bigger going on. And so she, and, and she's kind of the only one who can do anything about it. So she starts looking into it, you know, very reluctantly, but it's just like, well, who, nobody else will do this. And what else am I doing? Nothing. So I guess I will start poking <laughs> at this. Um, and things just go nuts from there. Uh, it is just, oh, it's such a big story. Like there's just this huge new world to explore and there's, you know, coyote and, you know, appears and there's a, like a wacky, like fight club situation and a casino. And like, there's all of these different elements to the story that you're just like, Oh, I want to know more about this. You know, she's traveling through this landscape and I just want to know all the things about everything. But also it's such a personal story. Um, Maggie is so torn and conflicted and has just been sort of stomped on by her life she underwent a really horrifying event when she was a young girl that unleashed her powers um, and is part of what she thinks makes her a monster and you do relive that with her and it is gross um it is dark it is it freaked me right the heck out um and and some of the scenes that she is in you're just like oh i can't believe i'm reading this um because i have i'm a delicate flower um but it's really great and it's so well imagined and maggie is so compelling and i just think yeah this is and it's the start of a series so we're getting more um and i think it's a very good comp for that atmosphere and that sort of moral and ethical squickiness mm. of the gunslinger. So again, that's Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse. All right. My next pick is a comp for Thinner, which I feel like is an underappreciated Stephen King novel. Um, and I picked The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval, which is another tour novella. I This is just the tour novella show. It's mm -hmm. fine. It has been for like two episodes. It's okay. Um, the, the Ballad of Black Tom is actually a retelling of a... Um, Oh gosh, what's his name? H.P. Lovecraft, a short story. Lovecraft was a notorious, horrible, racist dirtbag. Um, Victor Laval is black and was rewriting that kind of supernatural, terrible Shithulu monster thing in New York 
um, from that kind of that perspective. So the main character's name is Charles, and he is a con artist, and he lives in Harlem in in the early 1900s. I think the book takes place in the early 1900s, um, and so he has been tasked with delivering a book to a woman in Queens. And he had to get it through, you know, nefarious means. Um, and he has to be kind of a con artist, like wearing disguises, making people think he's somebody that he's not, uh, in order to to do this kind of job because he has to navigate neighborhoods of New and boroughs of New York where he's not welcome because he's black. So he gets on the train, he goes to Queens, um, and has to pretend to be this this uh, what do you call it a busker, uh, like playing music. Uh, for money on the train um, and not a person who has like some something real to do in Queens and he gets there and he delivers a book this book to uh, the woman who's asked for it who's paying him for it and you realize as you're just kind of watching him make this what seems like a run-of-the-mill delivery of maybe a you know a black market piece of art or something like that that the book is actually magical as soon as it hits sunlight it starts to smoke the woman won't come outside to talk to him um, and then you realize that he's hidden part of it because he knows what it is like Tom doesn't He's not, he's not oblivious to these supernatural things that are happening around him. Um, but he doesn't care. Like, he's just here to make money. His father, he lives with his father in Harlem. His father worked his whole life as a bricklayer and is now too, like, medically infirm to work. So he's supporting his dad. Um, and he's just trying to make ends meet and maybe a little more, uh, which is hard, you know. Um, and so he's, he doesn't want to get involved. But he recognizes what the book is and the fact that it's super dangerous. So he, he takes a page out and keeps it. And then from there, things just devolve. And if you've read the Lovecraft, I had not read the Lovecraft, and I won't because I don't like Lovecraft. Um, but if you read it, then then you kind of get, you, then you maybe know what's happening. But he gets deeper and deeper into this occult kind of conspiracy. Um, the difference is that, you know, this is an end of days story, as is the original. This is a, a story about somebody awakening a like deep, dark, old god to destroy the world. Um, but the person who is awakening this deep, dark old god to destroy the world is this, like, creepy old white man who is taking advantage of marginalized people uh, and telling them, like, I'm going to awaken this god. You help me awaken this god, and I will set right all the wrongs that have been done to you and yours. Um, and he tries to con Tom into going along with it. And so I'm not going to, like, tell you what happens. It's just a novella, like I said, so you can get through it pretty quickly. But the way that it reminded me of Thinner is that Thinner is about... A man just trying to live his life who does something a little dumb and mean and gets caught up in this occult situation that he can't get out of that is personally dangerous. And it's the same thing that's happening to Tom. Like he gets involved in the situation that he initially didn't want anything to do with, but it just eats him up. Uh, and it's just you can't stop reading it. So that's The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval. Nice. Um, all right. My next book to comp was on writing <laughs> because I took the least creepy ones available to me. Um, and this is a bit of a sideways pick, but I think that it it makes sense in my head. So maybe it will make sense in yours. Um, and my pick for this is Books and Islands in Ojibwe Country uh, by Louise Erdrich. And the reason I picked this book is because... This is a book by a master writer about storytelling. What's a little bit different about this one is I think it is more memoir even than on writing. I mean, on writing is definitely part memoir, um, but this is maybe even a little bit more so. Uh, it is sort of a very short 
travelogue almost about her going, um, taking a boat through the lake of the woods in southern Ontario um, to all of these different islands. And she's traveling with her baby and the baby's father. Um, and they're sort of going on a pilgrimage. Um, but she's also thinking about books. She's taken some books with her and she's thinking about the books that she's read as she's traveled and books she's read in the past and what they remind her of. And she's also thinking about her own career and how she came to be a writer and what writing has meant to her over time. And then all of that in the context of, you know, the storytelling traditions of her ancestry. Um, and so it's it's a really beautifully written, sort of thoughtful, really accessible and simple look at what it means to tell stories and what stories mean to us. Um, and I think that, you know, like it's not a guide to writing the best sentences, um, but like it in in the way that on writing gives you sort of a peek into the mind of and life of a great writer, like this book does that exact thing. And Louise Erdrick is so good. Um, and I think that if you are interested in the craft of writing and hearing sort of about process, but also the broader context of what it means to be a writer, uh, this is exactly the kind of book that you want to be reading. And it will make you want to read so many books. Can I just tell you, like every book she references, I'm like, oh, I should read that. Oh, I should read that. Oh, I should read that. Um, because she's just so good on why stories are important and what they mean to us. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's just a great book, but specifically if you are looking for books about craft and process, but that aren't just like a straight up like here's how to structure an outline. Uh, I think this is the kind of book that you're going to want to put on your shelf right next to On Writing by Stephen King. So that's Books and Islands in Ojibwe Country by Louise Hergic. All right. My last pick is Accidental. I read it while we were <laughs> prepping for this um, show, not for the purpose of having it on the show. I just thought it was interesting when I got it. And then I was like, dang, this is this is such a read alike for it, which I had never been able to find. I'd never there's there is it is mm. such a singular reading experience. It is so terrifying and so weird. And, just, you know, Stephen King's brain is just such a weird place. But so Saw Kill Girls is is a YA version of it if it were about like feminist rage. And I loved this book so much. It just came out. It's by Claire Legrand. Um, and it takes place on a small island off the coast of New England somewhere. I don't even know what state. I don't think she says what state. And in that, um, you know, small island off the coast of New England way, it's very exclusive, very wealthy. Um, like the economy is run almost entirely by thoroughbred horse breeding, like that, those kind of people. And you're following the perspectives of three different girl. Did I say the title? Saw Kill Girls is the title of the book. <laughs> Saw Kill Girls. Saw Kill is the island. Um, you're following the perspective of three different girls. Marion, who is new. Her family has just moved to the island after her father died, her and her older sister, who's like a year older. Um, and they have been hired to be the housekeepers for one of the wealthiest families on the island uh, who were, you know, like foundational to the founding of the place and that sort of thing. Um, and then Zoe, who is kind of a, she's an outsider. She is really lonely. Her father is the sheriff. She's also one of the few, maybe only, I think there's one other black character in the book. She's the only black person on the island who is like a POV character. And she really feels that. And her, you know, her dad's the sheriff. So like, she's got some baggage from that. Um, and then Val. Val is 
the queen bee. She is the uh, she is the daughter of the family who Marion you know has come to clean their house. Um, she owns all of these thoroughbred horses. She's also the like secret minion of a terrible evil that has lived on the island for generations. Every female born in her family, like the first girl born in her family, becomes tied to this monster, and the monster eats girls. And that is what the book is about. So you know from the beginning that Val is like awful. <laughs> she's terrible. Uh, she she befriends girls. She's like rich, charming, beautiful. She befriends girls and then feeds them to this monster. So everyone knows that like on Sawkill Island, girls disappear. They have been for decades, ever since, you know, the, the island started having historical records. But, you know, it's like once every couple, every 20, 30 years, you know, the, the, the island is surrounded by cliffs. Girls run away. Nobody wants to live there. Like people make excuses for the reasons why the girls go missing. Um, and Zoe is new to the island, so she's not been indoctrinated in that kind of like, well, nobody really cares kind of stuff. And then one of her best friends becomes the missing girl, and she refuses to let go of what happened to her. So through Zoe, you like really deep dive into this like evil that has been living on this island. And the three of them kind of come together, not necessarily in friendship because, you know, Val's a little bit evil, um, but she like has her reason. She becomes kind of oddly sympathetic. It's a weird, it's a weird reading experience, but it's very much these three girls against this, this, this like just dark evil thing, monster that has lived in this place forever maybe, and is using children, young girls to increase his own power so he can like break free and ruin the world and all this kind of thing. The twist thing here though, I mean, that's like a tale as old as time, right? Like monster stories where a band of scrappy kids comes together and defeats them is not limited to it. But the twist here is that there is a, an, a, like a group of adults, a secret society, entirely composed of men whose job it is to hunt down these kind of monsters. Like it's known that they exist, um, but the way that they destroy them involves oppressing the girls who are the actual victims. So the girls in this book aren't fighting just against the evil that's trying to destroy them, but also against the men who are using them for their own means, like their own, you know, for their own purposes. So it's just, it's like angry. Like if it were just girls and was really, really ragey, <laughs> that's what you would get here. Uh, I loved it so much. So that's Saw Kill Girls by Claire Legrand. Nice. All right. I my last book to comp was eleven twenty two sixty three, which, as you probably know, is sort of like well, yeah, it's Stephen King's time travel novel about um, the assassination of JFK and like what if you could go back in time and prevent that from happening? Like, wouldn't everything be better? Um, and also, how would you do it? Um, and the book that I picked to comp for this is Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, which is not a straightforward time travel novel, but revolves around a similar central question in that, like, what if you could go back? In, what if you could kill Hitler? Like, what if you could kill Hitler? But what's so crazy and interesting about Life After Life is that, like, it takes its slow time to get there. And also that's not the only thing that's going on. Um, the main character, Ursula, is born in 1910 um, to a, like an English baker and his banker, excuse me. Um, and like they're, you know, they're not any, anything special, no marked out by anything particularly odd. Um, but she, uh, what happens to her is that she basically she keeps dying and then living her life over again. Bummer. And like, yeah, it's, it's, and, and so, you know, like in, in fact, uh, like the very first life she lives, 
she dies in childbirth. But then, you know, and then she, then the book starts over sort of in, in, and she's born again. And this time she makes it a little bit farther. And each time she makes it a little bit farther forward and you see her sort of start to become aware of this like really sort of strange phenomenon like she's you know deja vu except like have I been here before oh I know I know not to go down that staircase why do I know that like what what even is wrong with that staircase it doesn't matter um and so you see her try to figure out like a, what is happening to her, and then why? Um, and, like, what does she have to do? Because this is a little bit, like, I think this sounds like hell to me. Like, having to live your life over and over and over again and and just and know that you're doing it. And it's like, okay, but how do I how do I win? Like, how do I make this stop? How do I level up? How do I end this repetition? Because that just sounds exhausting to me. Like, oh my gosh, you get you have to live forever, but you don't even just get to be immortal. Like you're gonna die and then have to relive your childhood forward all over again forever. Oh, that sounds terrible. And it like it, I found it really creepy in a very subtle way. Um, and you see her sort of start to try to figure out like okay what is what is my life about and why do I keep living it and what am I going to do about it and along the way you know you do see her like move through the decades and like become a young woman and then a, a wife or a mother and you know make very different choices in one life as opposed to the next one all organized around this crux point of World War II um, so it's not like stylistically it is not at all a direct comp um, but sort of that organizing principle and like how do do you do something like that and and this weird interesting twist on time travel like I just love I just thought it was such a strange book it is unsettling um and it's fascinating and if you like especially if you like historical fiction and being immersed in a particular time period which I think 11 2263 does you know for like the the you know that the Kennedy era, um, this does for World War II, um, but it has this sort of tension that's you know overriding everything else about it. So not a direct comp, but I just I just kept thinking about this book when I thought about eleven twenty two sixty three. So again, that's Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, and that's our show. Hooray! Hooray! So yeah, not so creepy. Creepy reads. <laughs> Unsettling, I think, is what I've landed on. They're all yeah. queasy making. <laughs> right, queasy making. There you go. Maybe you um, like, oh, ooh. would not recommend to your mother. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, well, thank you all so much for listening. Please do feel free to tell us your favorite read-alikes for King in the comments or on the site or wherever. Um, you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and we would super appreciate it. We love to see the feedback, and it helps other folks to find the show. Thank you to today's sponsors for making the show possible. You can find me on social media on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL, and that's Jen with two N's, IRL. And I am on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And we'll talk to you next time. 